You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. It was a victory for those who died waiting for a piece of Hawaiian homelands. The Hawaii Supreme Court handed down a decision that went against the state of Hawaii for its handling of the program aimed at putting Native Hawaiians on homestead property across the state. HBR's Kuve Hirishi joins us this morning to talk about that. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Yes, the class action lawsuit, Kalima versus the state of Hawaii, uh, the final decision for damages or a compensation and how to figure that out that ruling came down last week uh, from the Hawaii Supreme Court but this issue of damages it's really interesting so the issue of damages was the subject of court proceedings for the last 11 years the trial itself to figure out whether or not the state was liable for breaches of trust in not getting Hawaiians on that land in a timely manner that took six months but the actual damages and trying to come I guess reach common ground on what would be fair and how would we accurately come up with that number that's been uh, talked about for the last more than a decade. So the lawsuit, just some background on the lawsuit, it was filed back in 99 on behalf of more than 2,700 beneficiaries of the Hawaiian Homelands Trust and they claim the state breached its trust obligations by not awarding them a homestead lot over that time or at least in a timely manner. Now, the trial itself is wrapping up, but the next step is to figure that number out, that compensation. Carl Verity, uh, co-lead counsel for the plaintiffs, says that it's, it was already a hard time to figure out what it was going to be. But now moving forward, the process uh, might get a little bit more uh, sticky. Here's Verity. Our main objective in all of this litigation over these 20 years is to try to get these kupuna compensated for the breaches of trust that they've endured over these decades, finding middle ground for presenting our damages claims is one way of trying to get the canoe to the shoreline of compensation uh, a little bit faster. I like that phrase. I <laughs> That's like why that phrase. I didn't get to put it in my story, so I wanted to. I wanted to use it there. It is. It illustrates what, what's really going on. So this is a very complicated case. You've got thousands of claimants, all with varying circumstances. So some have applied for Hawaiian homes, but their application got lost. Um, and then they went back onto the wait list, uh, but they're getting claims for the initial application. There are folks who have uh, been on the wait list for a while, but eventually did get a homestead, and they are also part of this case. So figuring out accurately and fairly compensating these folks uh, has been uh, sort of a, a hard thing to figure out. The court could have asked each claimant uh, to add up the amount of rent that they would have paid for the time that they were on that wait list, but figuring out how to document that and whether or not they could. For example, you have folks who uh, live with their family and aren't paying rent. Um, folks may have become homeless because of not being able to get that benefit of a homestead. So for these, uh, uh, you know, because of these circumstances, the high court had said, you know, let's not eliminate that possibility and uh, let's put that documentation aside. We're going to come up with our own formula. And so uh, what the court ended up doing was creating a formula based on the fair market rental value for this 5,000 square foot residential lot in Maili on Oahu. And this is actually going to be the formula that's used for all claimants across the uh, islands. It was really interesting. According to Verity, it was a conservative, I mean, Maili land values versus Kahala or Manoa, right? Uh, they wanted to put something on the table that the state and the court would say was reasonable because you are going to be paying eventually 2700000 claims for that. We've got folks that have been on the wait list for decades. He can't even imagine what that number looks like. He says he, Verity has said that it's, it, you know, it's hard to give a ballpark figure, but he does believe that folks who have applied later or uh, more recently will have higher awards because of the value of the land going up in general there. Uh, but seeing as this case uh, was about a breach of trust over land, you'd think land would be on the table for compensation. But Verity says that kind of relief isn't provided in this ruling. The statute only provides for monetary relief. Uh, gotcha. The legislature, you know, and the department at any time uh, could have proposed some kind of in-kind resolution. Neither of them have done that. So we're left with the only method for justice 
and fairness that we have, and that's monetary compensation, which we hope to obtain for as many of the claimants as possible. So the department he was talking about in their Department of Hawaiian Homelands, they are uh, entrusted with carrying out the Hawaiian Homelands Trust, which was established uh, by Congress back in 1921, like you said, to uh, return Native Hawaiians uh, to the land. 50, more, uh, 50 or more percent Native Hawaiian blood is required for beneficiaries, and they get a lease to a plot of land for a dollar a year. So that's sort of the benefit which can really help in circumstances of high price, you know, the high cost of living, but also just high rent everywhere across the state. Uh, Verity says more than 400 of the 2,700 plaintiffs have actually passed away since the lawsuit began. That's a lot. Uh, and he says that they, their claims are still valid and can be claimed by uh, their descendants. So Renette Achong, a daughter of the deceased plaintiff Joseph Ching, uh, is part of the lawsuit now. Joseph Ching, her father, had passed away back in 2001, and he had applied for homestead in the early 60s, uh, but by the time he had passed away, did not uh, end up on a homestead lot. And so a Chong is trying to figure out a way to make sure her kids and the next generation get involved in the case you know, if the possibility comes across that she may not be here to receive that compensation moving forward. You keep fighting till you can't fight. You groom your family to sit there for you because I've been grooming my daughter and my son to stand here for me when I'm no longer there. When I came into this, I didn't know what my dad was doing. I read his thousands and thousands of pages of his testimony, of his case, and everything. It made my head spin. But they're young enough to learn. If they're brilliant enough, they can do this for their family. Because right now, I don't know where it stands. I may be dead, and my daughter got to stand there for me, or my son got to stand there for me. So it, she is expecting a compensation to take a while before uh, she receives it. Uh, but the next step is for a special master that has been appointed by the court to oversee this claims process. And they're going to go through every single individual claim, make sure the Native Hawaiian qualification is in place, that they meet the blood quantum, make sure that their uh, application dates are accurate because they're getting a certain amount of money per year of being on that wait list. Those details will all be hashed out by the special master and then a recommendation will be made to the courts who will then decide the final amount. And so as you were talking then to the attorneys, um, God, I mean, uh, 3,000, close to 3,000 people, that's a lot of folks on that list. That is, well, that's just the, the class action lawsuit. So the waiting list, which I have not talked about yet, we've got about 10,000 uh, beneficiaries of Hawaiian homesteads actually on the land right now, and another 27, more than 27,000 on the wait list. So they are all waiting for like these 2,700 plaintiffs for a plot of land um, from the trust. Okay, and then I know, full disclosure, I know you at one time worked for Department of Hawaiian Homelands. Yes, and so I you did. Have, you have a, also a, a, a different a viewpoint. A working understanding of, yeah, I think I, think I do, uh, the understanding of how the process works. And, um, you know, I'm also on the wait list. Parents are on the wait list, and uh, my grandparents are actually on Homestead. So this is an issue that really, you know, gets uh, close to my heart. But um, it's something that's been going on for so long, this 20-year court proceeding, really, to figure this out. I can't imagine what's going to happen next on the actual front for the Department of Hawaiian Homelands, who may be seeing a bit more pressure now with the economic situation in Hawaii um, and uh, the situation for Native Hawaiians and figuring out how to expedite, perhaps, getting people on the land. Yeah, and I have relatives that are on homestead land, and, and you know, it, it does vary, right, across the state where the neighborhoods, are, you know, are located, and, and the big issue has been development of, of a lot of these DHLNs. The cost of development is definitely a big factor, especially in areas where there is no running water or electricity, and trying to put in the infrastructure to get to the land and then awarding it out to see if anybody's actually going to go move there, that's another question. So there are a lot of hurdles for the department, but I think this Hawaii Supreme Court ruling really made it clear that, you know, these folks have definitely uh, incurred some damages from not having that opportunity. 
And I think now the department will probably move forward and figure out how to uh, make sure that that opportunity is given to the other 27,000 on the list. Well, I guess what I worry about is mm-hmm. given these tough COVID financial yeah. times is the state's ability to pay because that was always an issue right. about funding the right. Department of Homelands, you know, uh, in, in sessions past. And now we've got this economic crisis uh, and now we have this significant ruling. And so how do we go forward and where do we find the money to make it right? I think that will definitely be an issue moving forward because uh, from one estimate, I remember Verity had said in the past, I think it was to KHON, that the damages could be uh, as much as as $10 million in total, which $10 million the state possibly does not have right now. All right, okay. (laughs) Thank you so much, Kuvehi. Mahalo. We have been talking with HPR's Kuvehi Hirishi about the recent Hawaiian Homelands ruling by the Hawaii Supreme Court. It's now time for the latest COVID-19 news from the BBC. This is the coronavirus global update on Wednesday, July the 8th. I'm Nick Miles. The number of people who've tested positive for the coronavirus in the United States has officially passed 3 million. The World Health Organization says there's evidence that airborne transmission of the coronavirus may be more of a problem than it previously thought. And crowds in Serbia have stormed the parliament building in response to the announcement of a weekend curfew. The number of people who've tested positive for the coronavirus in the US has officially passed 3 million. The Vice President, Mike Pence, was speaking at a White House coronavirus task force briefing. At this point, we have tested more than 39 million Americans. Among those, uh, more than 3 million Americans have tested positive and more than 1.3 million Americans have recovered. Sadly, more than 133,000 Americans have lost their lives and our sympathies are with all of the impacted families. Well, most new cases are being reported from southern and western states, including Florida, Oklahoma, Arizona, Texas and California. The World Health Organization has said there's emerging evidence that COVID-19 can be spread by tiny particles suspended in the air. If confirmed, the advice on how to prevent the virus spreading may have to change. Naomi Grimley explains. They haven't embraced the idea of airborne transmission completely. They're just saying that they'll look into it and come back to us in the next few days and weeks. The reason that the WHO has had to take notice is that a letter by 230 doctors and clinicians was written to the Journal for Infectious Diseases saying that it really was time for the WHO to take notice. And they cited things like a choir practice in Washington state and also a restaurant in China where people fell ill even though they weren't within a matter of a few feet of sick people. So that's why it's become so salient now. Donald Trump has given formal notice that the United States will leave the World Health Organization next year despite those soaring rates of COVID-19 around the country. The president had already threatened to withdraw funding to that international body, accusing its bosses of being under the control of China. The Democratic challenger, Joe Biden, says he'll take the United States back into the WHO on the day one if he wins November's election. The new Prime Minister of France, Jean Castex, has ruled out a reimposition of nationwide restrictions in case of a new major coronavirus outbreak. Speaking on French television, Mr Castex, who played a key role in planning France's exit from the lockdown that was introduced in March, said that any future measures would be targeted. Of course, we will not implement any new lockdown because, first, we've learned and my observations have shown that a new absolute lockdown will have terrible economic and human consequences. Fortunately, we are preparing and it's the government's role to prepare, to anticipate. The German Chancellor Angela Merkel has said the European Union is facing a great challenge in the next month to contain the coronavirus pandemic as well as its health, social and economic consequences. She was speaking as Germany assumes the presidency of the EU for the rest of the year. Thousands of protesters have clashed with riot police in the Serbian capital, Belgrade, after the government announced a weekend curfew in the city in response to a rise in coronavirus infections. Here's Guy Delaunay. Protesters threw stones and other objects while police beat people with batons. The catalyst was a televised address by President Aleksandr Vucic. He said Belgrade would be placed under curfew from Friday evening to Monday morning due to a rise in coronavirus cases. 
Protesters said they were angry because the government eased restrictions to hold last month's parliamentary election, and now they were paying the price. Australia is considering a cut in the number of citizens who are allowed to return from abroad as its second biggest city, Melbourne, begins tough restrictions on movement. The Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, said he would put forward a proposal within days to limit repatriation flights. These residents of Melbourne gave their response to the lockdown. It's not hardship. We're free. We can still do what we like in our own apartments. We can still walk around and enjoy the sunshine. The government's doing what they're advised to do, and I only assume that advice is good advice. I think we're doing a good job here overall. As frustrating as it is, I support it. The Ryder Cup has become the latest sporting event to be postponed as a result of the coronavirus pandemic. The golf competition between the United States and Europe was due to take place this year at Whistling Straits in Wisconsin on the 25th to the 27th of September. It has now been rescheduled for September 2021. This is the Coronavirus Global Update. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from PAR Hawaii, an energy company, a mission partner of Navian Hawaii, whose services include providing counseling and support to families fighting serious illnesses. More at navianhawaii.org. Tune in to HPR1 Saturday night for the next Hawaii Public Radio presents Blue Note Virtually Live. This week, it's Kapena, who have been playing their electrifying island contemporary music for 35 years. Original band member Kelly Boy DeLima is now joined by his three children for a fresh sound that will delight diehard fans and new listeners alike. That's Saturday night at 6 p.m. Tune in to HPR One or listen on the HPR mobile app. We have just come off the 4th of July weekend and leading up to the patriotic holiday on the mainland, there were scenes of drive-through naturalization ceremonies for new citizens. In one city last month, there was even a drive-in swearing-in event where those taking the oath stood outside their cars in a parking lot while the oath was heard over a bullhorn. Not so here in Hawaii, where very pared-down ceremonies are to be conducted in small groups of about a half a dozen with no gathering of family and friends to witness it. A district court spokesman says its programs to naturalize new American citizens have been suspended through September. And the Department of U.S. Citizen and Immigration Services has only just resumed administering the Oath of Allegiance. In fact, it will hold a ceremony tomorrow, Voter Registration Day. The U.S. District Court last held a naturalization ceremony to swear in new U.S. citizens back in February, just as the pandemic was unfolding. HPR was there. It was an elaborate affair held for a large group at Iolani School. Two graduates of the school spoke, District Court Judge Jill Otaki, whose family came to Hawaii as immigrants in a sugar plantation, and Jamie Lee, newly crowned Narcissus Queen, whose roots to a well-known Chinese kapahulu restaurant run deep. And so we linger at the last Hawaii naturalization ceremony pre-COVID, and during a time of deep political division in our country, we reflect on what it means to be an American, a reminder of the freedoms and responsibilities we have as U.S. citizens. came the Pledge of Allegiance. Here is Federal Judge Jill Otaki addressing the crowd. I think about my own life history. I never had the chance to thank my great-grandparents who came here from Japan. 
to work on the sugarcane plantations on Kauai and the Big Island. And I never got the chance to thank them because I never had the chance to meet them. But what I want you to know then is that the path you are forging now is not just for you, it's not just for your children or your grandchildren, or it's for your great-grandchildren and those after. And in some ways, the decision that you made to come to this country is not just for those who you know now and who you love most, but even for those who will come after you whom you may never meet. And I want you to know that they will never forget you, and they appreciate you, and they will always remember the sacrifices you made to be here, leaving behind a place that was probably very familiar to you and that you loved very much, as well as people who you loved very much. So whether you are here because you're fleeing a country of war, or you're here just because by chance the person you love most in the world happens to be an American, thank you for being here. I appreciate it, and the future generations that come after me will appreciate it as well. And finally, I have only one request of all of you, and that is to celebrate the fact that you are now United States citizens by doing even more to give back to our country and your community. And it can be in big or small ways. It can be by becoming politically active, running for office, or even simply by voting. That's an important thing that we as Americans do. And it could be by something even smaller than that, by just helping out a neighbor in need. Because part of why we are such a great country is because we realize that we are a country of communities that help each other out, that contribute to the greater cause. And now take a listen as Narcissus Queen Jamie Lee shares her family story. First and foremost, I would like to congratulate all of you that come from 18 different countries from across the world on becoming United States citizens. Today not only signifies you becoming Americans in this great country, it also means American citizenship for your descendants in future generations from now. As an American-born Chinese, I was blessed with a loving support system that motivated me every step of the way to achieving my goals and dreams. I was raised by my mother and father, who worked hard to send me here to Iolani School. After receiving my diploma, I was off to college at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, where I earned my bachelor's degree in communication, before diving into a career of marketing and advertising. I'm so grateful for the opportunities that I've been blessed with, but I would never be where I am today without my grandfather, my Gungong, who I learned so much more about while running in the Narcissus pageant. Gungong and my great-grandfather came from a poor family in Zhongshan, China, and immigrated to the United States in the 1940s. Together, they lived the American dream and operated a corner store at the corner of Baratanya Street here in Honolulu. With the money they made from the grocery store, they returned to Zhongshan, purchased land, and built a house for my grandmother and the rest of the Lee family. However, just before the house was completed, the communist army came into their village, persecuted them, and took away everything that they worked so hard to earn. So with just 25 cents left in his pocket, my Gungung returned to Hawaii. He came back to start over again. He strived to create a better life so that my grandmother and the rest of the Lee family who were being ostracized in China could come to America. For five long years, Gungung lived by himself and was employed at a local Chinese chop suey before he could establish his own restaurant, He Hing. With the success of He Hing, he was able to bring over my grandmother, his in-laws, and the rest of the family to the United States so that they could experience the freedom of life in America. My Gungong led by example and paved the way for our family. He taught us the value of hard work and education. His dedication and love set a foundation for my father, brother, and me to thrive here in America. Our family has lived the American dream. In the States, anyone from anywhere can invent, inspire, and improve. So today, I welcome you to the land of opportunity, where you will not only have the ability to build and live a free democratic life, but you will also have the opportunity to establish a legacy 
for you and all of your families. Once again, I would like to congratulate you all on becoming citizens of the United States of America. You will be writing the next chapter of our country's history of freedom and equality for all. Thank you. And the ceremony also included eight members of our armed forces. In fact, several units from the Army and Navy attended in uniform to support their fellow soldiers and sailors. We talked to the newly minted U.S. citizens, including Mary Ann Smith, who just completed basic training. It means a lot to me. Um, I came here a few years ago after my dad had been here for like 20 years. He's been a citizen, and he was able to apply for us, and we could come here. And just to be here today, you know, as a United States soldier and also now a U.S. citizen just means so much to me, and I'm grateful and for this day. what country is your dad from? Is your Nigeria. From Nigeria. Yes, he is. We are from Texas. Hawaii is my duty station, so after I, you know, went to basic training, I got stationed here, and here I am. And it's nice that your military family is here today. Yes. I'm so, I'm so happy my husband's here with me for support, so I'm grateful for that. All right. And is there anything you would like to say to your parents, your family? I'm just grateful for the sacrifices that they made. You know, my dad, my mom, my siblings, I just, I'm grateful for them, and I'm happy that, you know, because of them, I'm here today, and I can say that I did this. And Guy Frieger flew over from Maui for the ceremony. Are you from originally? Israel. Israel. And so tell us, what does this day mean to you? The biggest thing is freedom. Yeah, you know, being able to go wherever you want, come and go, be here, stay here, live a place with a really good life. You know? How long have you been in Hawaii? For what? I've been here for what? And so you have, uh, what, friends and family here today? Um, yeah, my girlfriend is here with me. You have family still back in Israel? Yeah. My family, my parents, my sister, my brother, everybody there still. I believe in freedom. And to me personally, religion shouldn't matter. And uh, race, yeah, being able to go and come back and go wherever you want without anybody telling you that you cannot is pretty much the biggest thing. Following that ceremony, the new citizens registered to vote, as they will do in tomorrow's ceremony. We should mention that the State Office of Elections is holding drive-through registration events today and tomorrow to get people to register for next month's primary election. Election officials are making a push to reach seniors, as there are lots of questions about how the voting-by-mail process is going to work. In our community, those looking out for the elderly have started reaching out to ease some of their fears and to make sure they are registered. We talked to former lawmaker Brickwood Galateria, now with Kapuna Power, about a campaign to make sure our Kapuna understand the process. We just want to uh, acknowledge the fact that this is a brand new world of voting. So, you know, vote by mail is a process that a lot of people aren't going to be used to, to. So with Kapuna Power, the television we're partnering with Office of Elections because when they announced vote by mail, the vast majority of inquiries that they got about the new process was from the kupuna. They've got to change their habits, you know, polling or whatever that is. So the kupuna vote became a high priority for the Office of Elections. You know, we're dedicating a complete campaign to getting the word out to kupuna on uh, the vote by mail, how important it is. And as we've been doing this rollout, you know, a strategic uh, plan on how to get uh, vote-by-mail information out into the entire state, we're learning about how limited, in some cases, kupuna are in this day and age of the COVID on even getting access, like the care homes, as an example. If the ballots go to the mail address where their home is instead of the care home, that becomes a bit of an issue. 
But I think basically what we're looking at is just the changing of habits. Vote by mail can really be a effective way to vote, especially since Hawaii has one of the lowest voting turnouts in the nation. This is a unique opportunity by which to get the numbers up in terms of civic engagement. And generally, seniors are pretty loyal voters. I mean, they turn out on Election Day at oh, the yeah. polls. Oh, yes. Every politician knows that the Kupuna demographic is probably the most reliable voter block we got. And this is a sea change for everybody. Office of Elections does realize that uh, Kupuna needs a little bit more attention in this way. And it's also a way by which, you know, the family can sit down on a table and talk story about you know, the, the process and how it's going to be done. The Mo'opuna can help the Kupuna and vis-a-vis, -vis, you know. So it's a unique time. I mean, here we are sitting in the middle of the COVID, too, so it makes it even harder for accessibility for a lot of the senior communities. But we're going to do our best, and we'll see how it goes, because the ballot box is your mailbox right now. So uh, we're just going to do our best to get the word out on how it's going to be done. So hopefully, if you have, you know, an auntie or your mom and dad, it's somewhere in a care home or a long-term care facility, and the information from the election office comes to your home, you want to make sure that you get that to your mom and dad, yes. wherever they're staying. Absolutely. It's about the mailing address and where their mail goes to, right? So if it goes to the care home, obviously we have some great social workers who are on the lookout for these type of documents. I just spoke with a lot of social workers this past week since we're creating this distribution network. There's going to be, by the way, a four-panel piece that uh, is being brought to you by the Office of Elections and Kupuna Power. Vote by mail is Kupuna Power. That's what we like to call it. And then it's going to provide you information on how to do it and uh, we strategized working through state agencies like DOH, Executive Office on Aging, you know, the, the Ombudsman. Each county has an Executive Office on Aging, and, and then the private groups like the AARPs of the world. And, you know, the big Kupuna community resides in the faith-based community. Yes, our churches. Yeah, the churches. So. I've talked to the bishop of the Catholic Church. We've talked to the Episcopalians, the LDS, all of the different denominations. And they've really stepped up. And once this piece comes out on the ground and virtual as well, um, we hope to get it out to the vast majority of Kupuna throughout the state of Hawaii. Just to give them a sense that, hey, listen, we want to dedicate this particular effort uh, squarely for the senior community. So that's going to be coming out in, a, I'd say, about a week. Okay. So there'll be different components of this campaign. Uh, but the main thing is Thursday is the registration deadline for the primary election. And so if there are folks out there that haven't yet done that, you can help your kapuna to to do what they like to do, right? To, to Which vote. Is vote. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, learn from them, too. There's so much to learn from them. But this is like a new, it's a new uh, world. I mean, Look at what happened in March, and here we are in uh, in July. July. Yes, we're, we're still trying to figure that one out. But um, you know, check with Grandma, check with Grandpa, and all the kupuna. Check with your mo'opuna. Make sure that they're registered to vote too. It's a kako thing. It's a kako thing. Kako, a Hawaiian value of inclusiveness. We are in this together. For links on the drive-through schedule today and tomorrow, head to our website. days shift and change, some things don't, like HPR keeping you informed with news you can trust and providing an oasis of music when you need it. So stick with your routine 
and stay connected at home. Listen to HPR on air, online, or on your smart speaker. Whether you're working in your street clothes or in your pajamas, HPR is here for you. Just ask your smart speaker to play Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Carol Hills. Other countries look to the U.S. and see a nation struggling to manage COVID-19. I get emails and text messages from all over the world just kind of shaking their head. What is happening? Why has the U.S. response been so ineffective? Looking at the U.S. from beyond our borders, we take a global view of America. It's the world. Starting this afternoon at 1. When you're out and about, stay connected on the HPR mobile app. Whether you're on a run, walking the dog, or just doing errands, take Hawaii Public Radio with you. Stream the latest news and talk from HPR One, or experience the soothing calm of classical music on HPR Two. Plus, you can see playlists, listen to interviews, and see the program schedule too. Available 24-7 right from your smartphone. Available on the App Store or on Google Play. Substitute teachers falling through the cracks without those unemployment checks. That's the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beats reporter Marcel Omre on the line today. Good morning, Marcel. Morning, Catherine. Good to be here. You know, thinking about these substitute teachers, I know there was a very long protracted lawsuit some time ago just about pay raises. And now it seems that they're in another pickle. That's right. So, as you know, there's been a lot of issues uh, since the pandemic hit with unemployment insurance. And this is just another facet of this that affects most of the 4,700, or I should say more than 4,700 substitute teachers in the state. And, you know, these these subs are are really important in that they're helping to fill in the the gaps with uh, the teacher shortage that, that we face out here. And the issue that they face in terms of the unemployment insurance is uh, that they're basically uh, they've seen their payments all come to a halt starting in June. And in a lot of cases, this is, you know, it took a a few weeks, if not months, for them to finally start seeing unemployment for their work during the year. Uh, But the the payments have stopped because normally subs who work the regular uh, school year, right, which which ends in the summer, uh, they are not eligible for their sub work uh, for, uh, you know, for, for those payments during the summer. And where it gets tricky is that a lot of these subs, you know, when they're not working during the school year, they will make ends meet with with summer jobs and these more seasonal jobs. And for a lot of them, it can be very, very difficult to qualify for unemployment um, payments, you know, for those seasonal jobs. Uh, if they do qualify, it might be minimal. Um, so they're really, basically, it's, it's a situation in which uh, our unemployment insurance system does not really fit very well for the subs, and, uh, and they're struggling. And you had highlighted a particular case of a substitute teacher on Maui. Yeah, this was uh, this was Laura um, Laura Cole, and and she was generous enough to to share some of the situations that that she's been going through. And yeah, that, that you know she was surprised with um, a lot of other people to to see that her her um, payments had stopped, and now she's been uh, trying to get some other uh, income streams going. But uh, she works; she usually works at a, a private summer summer school. I believe it was either summer school or summer camp. Uh, that of course is not in session uh, with with the pandemic. So the way that the state statute works for this in terms of subs is that they are not eligible for unemployment insurance as long as they have a quote reasonable assurance that they will be able to have that work resume in the fall. And so what the state's labor department is looking at right now, and I understand they might have a decision out soon, but it's whether or not that reasonable assurance still exists, given all of the uh, the upheaval and a lot of the unknowns and the questions that still exist about how the fall is is going to roll out at uh, the, the, the public schools across Hawaii. And the situation, of course, with the substitute teachers, you know, is that we don't have enough uh, regular teachers in the classroom. There's a shortage. And, uh, you know, so you've got this uh, really... Uh, well, not a good situation in the public schools, you know, and, and, and then you've got these substitute teachers that are getting dinged 
because of this uh, the system. Yeah, I mean, we you know we really, especially in in Hawaii, you know, um, substitute teachers play a really outsized role in trying to uh, keep a lot of these classrooms afloat. Yeah, and and even talking to Laura the other week, she's she's mentioning how she she's considering going back to school. Uh, she loves working with kids, and uh, you know this this job has been great for her. She loves doing it. Um, but just given some of the, the situations that they're facing and that the, the, the pandemic has really exposed, uh, you know, uh, she's already considering, um, you know, maybe to go in a different way that would be more stable in, in situations like these. So it, it really does highlight how this pandemic, <coughs> excuse me, is, is really, you know, is, is highlight. It's, it's, it's showing how, how these subs are, are are really at risk. Yeah, I'd be curious to see because there's so much uncertainty going into the school year, you know, how many subs are going to be returning to the classroom to help with the shortage. And, you know, who knows? Who knows if there are regular teachers that are out there contemplating retirement uh, because they don't want to deal with the hassle of remote learning and everything else. Right. Just like so many other facets, this is just highlighting, uh, you know, this pandemic's highlighting this, this particular vulnerability here in Hawaii. Yeah, so, um, gosh, so a word could come, you know, maybe today or sometime this week? Yeah, that's what I hear is that um, uh, Department of Labor Industrial Relations, uh, they may have something out as early today, a blanket decision on whether or not these substitutes are going to be, in fact, eligible uh, for the unemployment insurance payments in the summer. Okay, well, we'll look for that update. Thanks so much, Marcel. Thanks, Catherine. That was reporter Marcel Henri with today's Reality Check. To read his story on this issue, visit civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, reopening July 16th and welcoming the community to reconnect with the art and museum spaces on Pauhana Friday evenings through September. HonoluluMuseum.org. Waikiki Aquarium has joined a handful of other attractions across the state in the slow, careful process of reopening amidst the COVID-19 pandemic. The aquarium closed its doors in mid-March over ongoing safety concerns and in the months following its temporary closure, reported spending roughly $2 million just to keep the facility operating. Now, as the iconic attraction begins welcoming back visitors, the aquarium's director, Andrew Rossiter, hopes that the new health and safety guidelines will offer a safe, socially distanced experience. He spoke with the Conversations' Harrison Patino about changes made to the facility in response to the pandemic. We've been looking for the earliest opportunity to open the aquarium under safe circumstances and as a way of acknowledging the great efforts that the healthcare community has made, not only during the COVID crisis, but on a day-to-day basis, we had uh, a free entry for healthcare members for the entire week. So what do you think some of the key challenges that exhibit-based attractions like aquariums are going to be facing going forward? Well, if I can take that back a few months The big challenge is for um, institutions such as ourselves is that we can't just walk away and switch the lights off and come back three months later. So everything has been up and running as per normal in terms of life support systems, pumps, filters, etc. during the entire time. And that has been compounded on the other side of the equation by no income during that period. Yeah, I believe the aquarium saw a pretty significant loss of revenue per month while it was closed. Those diamond head luau's might also affect the income taken in by the aquarium for the near future. Absolutely. We're part of the University of Hawaii and we're probably unique within the UH system in that we're basically a business. 
So uh, our income is derived through gate receipts, which is people visiting, uh, funds from the gift shop, and as you noted, funds from facility rentals after our rentals, which includes the Diamond Head Luau. And yet, from what I understand, you've kept the price of admissions consistent. What was the decision behind that? I can't justify raising prices to come in to see something today that was the same as people saw yesterday at a lower price. If I were able to improve and expand upon the exhibits in the aquarium, then yes, I think it would be justified to charge more to come in. But just to be fair to the community and to all visitors, actually, I I can't justify an increase in admission fees under present circumstances. Well, it's certainly very customer-friendly, but are there any worries about fiscal viability going forward with a decision like that? Huge, huge worries. Um, This three-month hiatus cost us, in terms of money going out and lack uh, lack of money that would have been coming in. It's cost us about uh, $2 million. And when you consider that our annual budget is running just a little over three, you can see how, how drastic that's been. So we've had to um, draw upon funds that I'd put aside. I've been saving over many, many years here for future projects at the aquarium, the potential small expansions, new exhibits, etc. And now we're drawing upon that. So essentially, we're eating away at the future of the aquarium just to stay alive at the moment. Well, like you said, that's no small amount of money to scoff at. Are there any plans to recoup those losses? The only way we can recoup is continue as is. But the big challenge now is that because of the COVID crisis and the safety measures we've implemented, we are only allowing in 50 visitors per hour. Whereas prior to that, it would vary during the day, of course, but it was about 100, 120 on average. So we're way, way down on on our maximum potential revenue stream per hour. Now, while that certainly correlates to a lower revenue stream, there are some saying that a less crowded, for instance, museums, zoos, and aquariums would make for a better individual experience for the people going there in the first place. Do you agree with that? Uh, Absolutely. It's, It's very, very pleasant to wander through the galleries now without bumping into people and people stepping in front of you to see the exhibits, it's great. And this is not a, not a financially viable uh, comment, but I really, really enjoyed it when the aquarium was closed because I had the whole aquarium galleries to myself. Now, have you been in touch with other operators of public attractions about the best practices regarding health and safety, and did those conversations inform yeah, your decision right to reopen? from the uh, middle of March, there's um, a group of... Uh, Aquarium directors and curators on the mainland, and uh, a, another group joined in as well. And we've been uh, having weekly meetings and identifying the optimal procedures moving forward. Thankfully, some of them implemented their uh, openings earlier than ours, and so um, those of us who were later. Uh, learned from the mistakes that the early openers encountered. Do you hope that you can set a precedent of health and safety for other attractions in the future? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, we, we're probably overzealous here, actually, which is not a bad thing in this uh, under these circumstances. But, yeah, I think it will be a, a good guideline for other operations to, to look at when they're considering opening. In terms of outreach efforts, what has it been on the part of the aquarium on letting people know that it's back up and running again and they can go and see these exhibits? Okay, we've got a a website, waikikiaquarium.org. We've got friends of the Waikiki Aquarium supporters group. They've all been notified. Members have been notified. We've had um, a couple of articles in the press and news releases, those kind of things. The great thing is that people have been coming up to the aquarium for the past month on the off chance that it was open, asking when it was op- when it was going to open. So there's obviously a need, especially in these times, to visit somewhere that's uh, air-conditioned, safe, and enjoyable. Now, I'd just like to get your thoughts on what you feel is the importance of reopening these big, iconic public attractions at a time like this, the idea of giving residents uh, safe distraction during these times. I, I think you've already answered the question there. It, it, or, it is a safe place to come. It's an enjoyable place to come. It'll maybe maybe give uh, people an opportunity to spend more time here than they would otherwise, Uh, look at the tanks in detail, and uh, redevelop or expand upon an interest in the marine life around these islands. It's pretty special. You know, roughly one-third of the fish species found around Hawaii are found here and nowhere else in the world. 
So getting little facts over like that to people hopefully encourage encourage them to pay greater heed to the value of the uh, marine life around Hawaii. Now, Andrew, any final thoughts on the reopening? Um, I'm pleased it's happening. I've been through the galleries a couple of times. We may increase the number admitted per hour. We'll give it another week or so just to check, but 50 was very, very comfortable in there. There was no congestion and people were following the rules, so we may kick it up to 60. Is there any consideration of the state and county guidelines on that matter? Yeah, we, we pay attention to the CDC and the state and county guidelines, yeah, absolutely. So as long as people can maintain a six-foot distance inside the aquarium, which we've, we've measured out, there's a one-way route through the aquarium, which people have to follow, so there's no looping back and getting mixed up in another group or with other individuals. Um, everybody has to wear a face mask while inside the galleries. You're welcome to take it off when you go outside, but... The only exception to that is uh, children under two. Andrew Rossiter, thank you so much for all this information. Glad to hear that the Waikiki Aquarium is uh, back up and running and hoping that all those people who were beating down the door while it was closed go in and buy some tickets. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you, Harrison. Appreciate it greatly. That was Waikiki Aquarium Director Andrew Rossiter and the Conversations Harrison Patino talking about the facilities reopening, which happened late last month. have to go but up tomorrow we plan a call-in show around masks masks in stores offices schools and anywhere you can't physically distance we talk new mandatory orders for oahu leave your feedback on our talk back line 808-792-8217 post your comments on facebook at the conversation hpr or tweet us at hi conversation and you know email works too talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org you can find our archive shows online. Uh, check under HPR News and Talk for the conversation on hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. Mm-hmm.